Our text this morning, as has been mentioned, is Psalm chapter 8, which you can find on page 420 if you have a church Bible. This is a psalm that has been of tremendous encouragement to me uh, over the years, and especially in the past few, since I was able to slow down and, and read it carefully and discover some truly breathtaking truths. It's a short psalm written by King David about the majesty and glory of God and the smallness and weakness of man and how amazingly compatible those two things are. So let me pray as I open God's word for us. God, thank you for this psalm. Thank you for this church. Would you bless this church through this psalm by your word? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read the whole thing for us right now. Nine verses. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we can see at the very beginning of this psalm that this is written by David, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. David was the young shepherd who tended his father's sheep. He was the mighty warrior who slew Goliath. He was God's chosen king called a man after his own heart. God's own heart, that is. And he was a skilled poet writing nearly half of the book of Psalms. Now, we don't know exactly when in David's life he wrote this particular psalm, but we do know he wrote it to the choir master. And presumably, therefore, he had a choir master, and so he was probably king at the time. Still, the seeds of this psalm were no doubt taking root in his heart even as he stared up at the nighttime sky during many a long evening of watching his father's flocks. Now, apart from that introductory line, the next thing that should really jump out at us from this psalm is that it begins and it ends in the same way. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, that capitalized Lord there in most of your Bibles is the personal covenant name of God. David is writing, O Yahweh, O Jehovah, our master, our ruler. O great I am who created and sustains all things. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And the repetition of that line suggests that this is David's main theme. Just as in modern songs. If you want to know what a song is about, look at the chorus. They're going to sing it a lot of times. And this is a song, therefore, about God's majesty. 
God's majesty, the majesty of his name in all the earth. And so we might ask, in what way, David, is the majesty of God's name on display throughout the whole earth? And at the end of verse 1, David tells us just what we might expect. You have set your glory above the heavens. And indeed he has. The moon and the stars are absolutely spectacular to behold. And the Bible tells us that God created all those with a word. So yes, David, we see where you're going with this. This is a song about God's majesty in creation. But then we get to verse 2, where David writes, Out of the mouth of babies and infants. What? David, I, th- I, thought, we were, I thought we were talking about the heavens here. So I'm thinking about star-filled skies and heavenly choirs and God speaking to Job out of the whirlwind kind of epicness. But babies? I mean, babies are cute. Hi, Matthias. Uh, but, like, that, that's... That's not God's majesty, is it? What's going on here? Well, here's the full verse again. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Okay, that kind of doesn't help. Like, this is a very strange verse. In this one verse, we are introduced to, one, babies and infants, and two, those that David calls God's foes, enemies, and avengers. And and after mentioning them here, they disappear for the rest of the psalm. No further mention. No further commentary. Yet, what David is clearly telling us here is that one means by which God's name is shown to be majestic in all the earth is in having the speech of infants somehow silence God's enemies. In some way, God establishes strength by virtue of those babies. God's majesty is shown in the weakest of all people. David makes that very clear right here. What he doesn't make clear is how. How is that so? How is it that speech of babies, which, mind you, is really not more than goo-goo-ga-ga, how does that result in strength that overcomes God's enemies? We're not told. At least not yet. Stay tuned. But David here in this psalm, is just getting started. And he's no doubt purposely surprised us a bit to this point, shifting his view from the heavens above to a baby down below. He did that in about a span of a verse or so, and he's about to do it again. If that was the first verse of this song, here comes the second verse. Let's look again at verse 3. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Okay, pause. Pause right there. Here we are again with David, right? We're with David. He's looking up at the nighttime sky. Except, truth be told, we're we're not really with David. Uh, Our situation's a little different, right? So if you and I go outside in State College or somewhat nearby, we don't see what David saw. Because we have lots of traffic lights 
and stadiums and, and street lights, all kinds of things that are constantly filling the sky with light. And so for most of us, when we think of the night sky, we think of the moon, we think of maybe a few stars, we, we think maybe of the Big Dipper, and if we're lucky, maybe we see a planet or something. That's what we think of. Let me show you what David saw. If you guys would be so kind as to put the slide up there. This is what David saw. Isn't it breathtaking? Friends, I've never seen the sky like this, personally. I never have. It's on my bucket list. And, and this doesn't do it justice. Because as anyone who's ever like seen a rainbow in the sky or a particularly large-looking full moon or something like that, you go to take a picture of it with your phone, what happens? It doesn't look anything like that. You're, you're t- it, it looks small and it looks sad and it's, it's just on this little two-dimensional screen. So even this is nothing like what it would be like if you were David looking out at the entirety of the night sky. This is nothing compared to the breathtaking glory of an entire three-dimensional blanket of stars enveloping us overhead. And of this night sky, David writes, I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. God did this, friends. God did this with his fingers. It was like, bing, 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 bing. That's how he made stars. And David, probably, when he wrote this, maybe God revealed something to him, but I, I, don't, I don't know that he did. Maybe, I, I think David had little idea of what he was even looking at here. Right? Like, I barely have any idea of what I'm looking at here. Do you? Like, these look like thousands of little sparkles of light. But the absolutely immense size of even the smallest star is mind-blowing. We simply can't comprehend the scale. And from what I'm told, and who even really knows if this is accurate, but that that kind of dusty blob-looking thing up there in the middle of the picture, that's the Milky Way. That's just a small cross-section of the Milky Way galaxy in which our star what we call the sun, is just one very, very small part. And supposedly we're floating uh, out there on one of the arms of this uh, 100,000 light-year spiral galaxy or something like that. But who even really knows? The galaxy is so unbelievably huge that no man or even no man-made object has even come anywhere close to being able to actually see our galaxy from outside of it. I mean, forget Star Trek and Star Wars and galaxies far, far away, guys. We're still here in our uh, our, our galaxy real, real close. <laughs> guys, we've just barely left our own solar system, let alone our galaxy. Okay, so why am I talking about this? Why are we sitting here in the dark considering the vast interstellar reaches of space. It's because this is exactly what David 
calls us to do in this psalm. In verse 3, he invites us to look up at the glorious heavens above in order to recognize, when he gets to verse 4, how very, very small we human beings are. Listen. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Okay, thank you, Elsa. You can take the slide down. We can put the lights back here so people can actually read their Bibles. We, like David, must be absolutely awestruck at the majesty of David's question in verse 4. And notice, friends, that it is a question. David can't even bring himself to make it a statement. What is man that you notice him at all? What is the offspring of man that you would even care? David's question here would be like asking the United States Supreme Court if they would hear the case of a single grain of sand at some beach in the middle of the ocean. Or asking why Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or someone extremely wealthy and famous, why they might deeply and passionately care for the well-being of a solitary inchworm in the deepest African jungle. That'd be altogether ridiculous, right? Yet God's care for us is greater than that. But David's not through yet. Let me read verses 5 through 9 once more. Yet you have made him, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the path of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. My friends, not only are we noticed, and not only are we merely cared for, look what these verses say. You, God, made us. And then you, God, crowned us. You crowned us with glory and honor. Friends, this is the same glory that God had set above the heavens back in verse 1. And here he is giving it to us. How can that be? We've already seen that just by looking up at the sky, we can plainly see that we are next to nothing. We can see, just look around, you and I are nothing special. We have no glory, we have no honor that is our own, yet we who are nothing are given everything. And then we are crowned. You and I are crowned to be kings and queens, princes and princesses. And then we are given a kingdom to rule. Verse 6 declares that God has given us dominion, that's authority, supremacy, preeminence, over all he created. God put all the works of his hands under our feet. From the beasts of the field and the fish of the sea to the birds of the heavens and friends, that includes even the stars themselves. If he created it, we rule it, because he gave it to us. This psalm declares 
that all the fields and all the depths and all that vast interstellar glory that we can barely wrap our minds around is subject to us. It's all under God's, I'm sorry, it's all under our feet because God put it there. And so David concludes in verse 9 with the same resonant message of majesty that we saw back at the beginning of this psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How is that majesty shown? God's majesty is shown through the weakest of people. First, it was through God silencing his enemies through babies. And here it is, again, God ruling his creation through insignificant us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic indeed. Isn't isn't this psalm a tremendous gift? In light of God's majesty, this psalm is brutally honest about how very little we matter. And it is gloriously hopeful about how very much we do. And that message of God's majesty expressed through our weakness was a gift to David's choir master and to generations of Israelites over many centuries. And it was so powerful a message, in fact, that it was picked up multiple times by the authors of the New Testament. For the sake of time, I'm just going to briefly look at one of those places. So um, I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. If you want, you can turn with me to Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. That's page 775 in the church Bibles. Matthew 21, 14 through 16, or feel free just to listen. It says this, And the blind and the lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? So picture the scene, friends. The children are crying out praises to Jesus. Praises that would normally be reserved for God himself, or perhaps for God's promised Savior, the Son of David, who comes in the name of the Lord. And so sure, it sure sounds here like Jesus is encouraging blasphemy among these little ones, right? And so the religious leaders are aghast. And they say, Jesus, are you hearing this? Are you paying any attention to this? And Jesus says, well, yes. Yes, I I absolutely do hear this. I am paying attention to this. And then he quotes, of all things, this strange line about babies from Psalm 8. The implication Jesus is making here, friends, is that this psalm we read this morning is about him. It's about him. He's saying that it is right for babies and infants and all the men and women that those babies and infants grow up to be to worship him as God. Jesus is saying he is the one who placed the heavens, the moon and the stars by the work of his 
fingers. Bing, 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 bing. That was me. That's what he's saying. And Jesus is saying that he is the one who crowns us and gives us all creation to rule by his grace. That is an audacious claim. David saw this in part. He saw that he could look at the heavens and he could look at man's weakness. And in that way, he could see God's majesty. What David did not fully see, which we can now see in Matthew's gospel, is that the one from heaven came down in the weakness of human form. And by his perfect life and death and resurrection, he is now majesty incarnate. And the majesty of his name right now is filling all the earth. Jesus said as much at the end of Matthew's gospel. He said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Therefore, we must go and make disciples of all nations. That is, Jesus is crowned ruler over all the earth. And he likewise crowned us to rule after him and under him. And so as crowned princes and princesses, we are commissioned to fill the earth with his disciples. We are called to fill it with the majesty of his name until all nations, all tribes, all peoples, and all tongues cry out with David, O Lord Jesus, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let me end our time looking at Psalm 8 by noting five implications and applications from this psalm. Number one, look and marvel. Look and marvel. As human understanding continually allows us to look both further out and deeper in, this ought only to increase our awe At all God has made. That is, despite the common narrative of our age, science is not the enemy of God's majesty. It is an amplifier of God's majesty. So look, friends, open your eyes and look. Look further up, look further in, and look all around. Read, listen, and learn all you can about astronomy and microbiology and everything in between. And marvel at all of it. College students, this this is especially true for you. Delight in your studies. We Christians of all people should be the most excited and the most eager participants in our classrooms. We're studying God's creation. We're learning about that which he has given us to rule. Now, non-Christian professors, of course, aren't going to present it that way. They're going to push a secular worldview. And I'm not saying you should mindlessly absorb everything they tell you. I am encouraging you to look further out and look deeper in. Look further out and deeper in than even your professors know how to do. And when possible, draw others after you. So that's your first Application, look and marvel. Here's a second one. This is an implication for us from this psalm. Very important. Number two, human life has value. Human life has the utmost value. Now, this is not what we usually hear in classrooms or in the news either. 
What they will tell us is that humanity is just a product of random evolution and a lot of time. We're just random chance that happened to work out billions of years ago. Good for us. So, babies in the womb, they're just a clump of cells with no worth. And those of us fortunate enough to be outside the womb, we're just a plague on this planet. And the earth, frankly, would be better off without us. And therefore... Things like assisted suicide, abortion, euthanasia, and eugenics are therefore increasingly talked about as good things. As morally beneficial means of controlling that out-of-control human population problem. They're, they're good at removing undesirable quanti- uh, qualities and undesirable individuals so that human beings over time somehow might eventually have value. My friends, Psalm 8 strenuously, vigorously, and passionately objects to that worldview. Psalm 8 says that your life already has value. Your life, every human life already has value. From the moment of conception to our final breath. Regardless of whether you're as healthy as an Olympic sprinter or struggling with an entire inventory of health issues that modern science can't even identify, let alone heal. Your life has value, friend. All human life has infinite value. Not because of what we've done or not done, not because of what some law says or doesn't say, and not because of our culture or heritage or skin color or worldview or education or finances or health or any other thing other than that God made us. And God cares for us. And God crowns us. And my friends, God died for us. Because to Jesus, your life has more value than 100 billion stars. Number three, human life has purpose. Human life has purpose. Now, I I need to qualify this point. Because if you are not a Christian here, if you haven't given your life to Jesus... If you haven't declared him to be both your savior who died for you and your king who crowns you, then to be honest, this point does not apply to you. Your life does not have purpose. Your life is currently without purpose. Not without value, mind you. See my previous point. Your life has value. We've already seen that your life, while tiny, has great value because of God. But... If you haven't yet joined in the shouts of those children in Matthew 21 who recognize that Jesus is indeed God and thus you are neither saved by him or commissioned by him, then you are simply wandering about in this world without purpose. Have you sensed that? Have you wondered what life is really for and what your purpose in life even is? If so... Please consider what we've looked at today in Psalm 8. And then open wide the Bible to explore the glory of God on every page. 
The entire Jewish Old Testament pointed forward to the coming of the Messiah who would save God's people. And then the New Testament identified that Savior as Jesus of Nazareth. And he gave his life for you. And then he commissioned you to begin or to finish the work that he began in filling the earth with his disciples, in filling the earth with the majesty of God. That's where true purpose is found, friend. So give yourself to Jesus Christ. In him and in him only can you find the purpose you're looking for. Now, for the Christian here, if if Jesus has indeed crowned you and commissioned you, then your life has purpose. You're on a mission. If you're a Christian, then the Bible says you're on mission, and that makes you a missionary. Some of you will be vocational missionaries, and that's great, but all of us have a mission to make disciples. So here's a challenge for you. Write it down and do it. This week, fulfill your mission. Tell someone, even one neighbor, one coworker, one friend about Jesus. Do for this world what the stars do for those heavens. Declare the majesty of God's name. That's number three. Number four. Embrace your weakness. Embrace your weakness. This is especially helpful for the Christians here who, who, who hear that call to make disciples and who, like me, appreciate that vision but don't feel sufficient for that task. Lord, I, I want to do that. I want to make disciples. I want to see your glory spread throughout the earth, but I'm, I'm not smart enough to do that. I'm, I'm not organized enough. I'm not brave enough. Maybe I'm, I'm not emotionally stable enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not, I'm not young enough. I'm not healthy enough. I'm just not enough. Yet, in this psalm, we've seen that God establishes strength that silences his enemies through babies. And in this psalm, we've seen that God gives the glory of the stars and of all his creation to teeny, tiny us. Now, surely God could silence those enemies, and surely God could rule those galaxies without us. So why doesn't he? It's because God loves to use man's weakness to show off his majesty. Because God loves to use you and me, weak little you and me, to show off his majesty. So friends, here's our conclusion. Our weakness is not a barrier to God's majesty. It is the means. Our weakness is not a barrier to God's majesty. It is the means. So embrace your weakness, friends. And behold the majesty of God. And here's our final application, which we're all going to do right now. Because if this psalm was written for the choir master, then this is a song meant to be sung. So your application, friends, is sing. Sing wholeheartedly. Sing to fill the majesty of God in all the earth. 
This psalm is meant to be sung by entire choirs and assemblies of God's people. So we're going to do that. We're going to sing right now. So worship team, if you would be so kind as to start making your way back up, let's together be inspired by the majesty of God as it is shown and sung through the weakest of all peoples. Let's pray while the worship team prepares to lead us in song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, you use babies and infants to show us that enemies can be stilled through those who can't do anything else. God, you use us to declare your worth, your power, your glory throughout all the earth so that people can know it wasn't us, it had to be God. We love you, Lord. We're so amazed that you love us. Would you fill our mouths with song now as we sing your praises with great joy and hope. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.